This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Irshad Manji talks with KQED journalist Kat Snow to discuss her experiences as a refugee from Africa, a Muslim immigrant to the U.S., and her Moral Courage project. This event was recorded on March 5, 2019, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. That's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. Great to see you here. Great to see all of you here. So we are... Now I'm going to introduce Irshad in a slightly different way, because the book is called Don't Label Me, as you've seen. And so I just couldn't quite imagine going through a list of labels to say, Irshad is this, that, and the other thing. So um, we're going to do some questions to learn a little bit about your bio. So tell me what is your favorite food from your birth country and then from the country you fled to as a refugee? Two different favorite foods. Wow. Uh, Of the many, many years that I have been interviewed and have been interviewing, that is the first time I've been asked that question. Wow. Congratulations, Cat Snow. (laughs) You've made this wordsmith quite speechless right off the top. Um, So, I kid you not, when we were living in Uganda, which is where I was born, after, um, you know, the, the heavy tropical rains, um, a delicacy for many people, my family included, um, was fried crickets. Mm. Uh, crickets would come out after the rain um, and we'd fry them up. And according to my mother, I, I hoovered. I loved the crickets. I don't remember that. I'll take her word for it. Um, and I will attempt, uh, you know, not to, um, not to verify that. Um, <laughs> we came to Canada as refugees uh, in ni- 1972, um, exiled, as so many other non-black people were, uh, by General Idi Amin. And the only country willing to accept us at that time was Canada, where uh, I was blessed, along with my family, to wind up. Um, so, uh, Canadian food? Honestly, yes. it's American food. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was English or French. It's, no, you know, <laughs> I mean, so, so in Quebec, definitely, uh, Les Québécois have, um, you know, their own menu items. Um, but I did not grow up in Quebec. I grew up in British Columbia. Ah. Um, no emphasis on the word British because it really ought to be called American Columbia in that case. Um, but I have uh, always uh, been a fan of potatoes. Um, um, fry them up, boil them up, you know, turn them into French fries. And yes, if in Quebec, throw cheese curds on them and a whole, you know, a whole dollop of gravy. Uh, and you've got poutine, which is, uh, you know, a, 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 a artery hardening, uh, but amazing dish. Um, so yeah, I, I can only tell you that, you know, wherever I go, I seek out the potatoes. potatoes. I must have a little bit of Irish in me somewhere along the way. You must, yes. yeah. Yes. 
So for a while, you were a professor at New York, NYU, New York University. What's something you learned there that you cherish today? That universities are not where I want to be. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that universities, uh, if ever they were places of actual education, um, have become places of conformity. And that um, young people, um, when they become uh, graduate students, um, more often than not have learned to play the game, uh, which is to regurgitate um, and think uncritically about the supposed critical thinking that they're learning from their professors. I'll quickly tell you, Kat, um, in, in the class that I taught, um, which, is, which was about moral courage, learning the skills of moral courage, um, because I wanted students to ask questions and to push back on anything that I was teaching that they had, you know, from personal experiences, any doubts about, um, I actually um, had to entice them to ask questions. I said, um, and it's, it was right there in the syllabus, I said, part of your grade will depend on uh, not just the quality of your questions to me, but the frequency of your questions as well. So remember, you have an enlightened self-interest in challenging me. Mm-hmm. And it was still hard to get them to do it. Like passing an act of parliament in Britain these days. It was nearly impossible. And later, um, when I, you know, it was safe for me to ask them why it was so hard to get questions out of them, um, more often than not, uh, they told me that they just weren't used to um, having the permission to and do that. And they didn't revel in it. They well, did not revel in it. This kind of leads into the next question anyway, yeah. which is you started the project Moral Courage. Yes. And, and tell us a little bit about what, how you define moral courage and sure. why you felt that was necessary. Sure. Although you may have just said why you thought it was necessary. Well, and, and that's only the tip of the iceberg, why right. it's necessary, because, you know, um, we, uh, even in the land of the free and the home of the brave, um, we, uh, we are less than brave uh, often, and, um, and we don't take advantage of our freedoms, um, you know, when, when we have them. Uh, so uh, why did I start the Moral Courage Project, and how do I define moral courage? So um, moral courage, quite simply, means doing the right thing in the face of your fears. Now, that's a lot packed into a short sentence. How do you know what the right thing is? Um, um, how do I know to identify what I fear? Uh, but wait a minute, yeah, I, I don't even know what my values are. So where do I begin? And when do I step up, you know, for the sake of honesty? And when do I step back for the sake of humility? Because I have conflicting values. Exactly. I have values that might hold two different answers exactly. to the question of what and to do. And sometimes doing the right thing isn't about just the what. It's also about the how, which I'm sure is something we'll touch on just we a will. little bit later. Yeah. 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 So um, as you can see, this made for a more than full uh, course. And... Um, the reason I decided uh, I needed to teach this um, is that uh, when I was touring for a good decade uh, with my first book, The Trouble with Islam Today, um, I had 
the most interesting moral courage moments that I did not know to call moral courage moments. And by the way, those moments had nothing to do with having written a book about reforming uh, the practices of Islam. No, I wasn't actually afraid to write the book. I was, I was chomping at the bit to get the ideas out there. Uh, it just so happens that sadly it took a 9-11 uh, for the world to become interested in you know, what was happening within the faith of Islam. That said, um, on many occasions, young people who came to my talks would uh, come to me afterwards and say, um, Irshad, you know, this is great. Thank you for what you're doing. But I'm Christian, I heard some say. And if you want to talk dogma, let me tell you about the dogma that's on the rise in my community. Or I would hear from uh, young Jews who would tell me, um, you have no idea the indoctrination with which I'm treated when I dare to criticize the government of Israel. Um, at the time, Kat, I even heard from young atheists who said to me, and I didn't quite get it at the time, now I certainly do, um, Irshad, you know, something weird is going on among us atheists. Uh, we preach rationality, but there's a real hate on for people like you, for people of faith. And how do I square that with rationality? But rather than allow my curiosity to open up to more questions, I became defensive because my ego heard, Yershad, you're wrong. There is no trouble in Islam today. No. So forget the scholarship you've done. Forget the effort you've put in to produce a book about it. Um, your thesis doesn't hold up. And Wait, just because other people were having the same issue? Correct. That's how I heard it, Kat, uh -huh. and that was entirely about my ego. About your self-construct. And, and, and my insecurity. It's a little bit of that hierarchy of oppressions. Right. You know, if you have an oppression, I don't get to have one because you have one. The zero, you can't have one because I right. have one. That's right. And the yeah. zero-sum game that right. we so often play that for me to win, you must lose. Right. And so instead of taking, you know, these, these insights from these young people as, um, uh, uh, as uh, points of discussion, I took them as fodder for debate. And I would get into it with them. But here's the magical thing that happened. So many of these kids, and on different occasions, would not get defensive with me. They would hear me out, and they would say, huh, interesting. I hadn't actually thought about it that way. Thank you. Now, what do you think of what I've just said? And the less defensive they were with me, the more permission I felt to lower my emotional defenses. And that is when I realized, wait a minute, moral courage is not merely about speaking truth to power with that power being external. Washington or your boss or an authoritarian, uh, you know, in your life. No, it's that. But it's also, at the same time, moral courage, about speaking truth 
to probably the most pervasive and most pernicious power in any of our lives, and that is the ego. Our own, our own constructs of identity. Our own and- constructs and our own dogmas. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing. You know, in speaking truth in, to an external power, you can become so strident that all you're doing is seeking to replace one dogma, one you disagree with, with another dogma, one you agree with. Mm-hmm. But how does that amount to progress when the fact is you have a dogma that also narrows the, um, you know, the possibilities um, for your own thinking? Yep. Well, let's dive right in then, because okay. this is this is the core of some one of the core pieces of your book, and so you talk about the ego. Interesting, you use ego a little bit differently than than I do. Right. But so you talk about the ego as this part of ourselves that defends the identity, defends the way I grew up, my cultural background, whatever my way of seeing the world is. That that is the ego structure. And can and I clarify just go one ahead. thing there? Yeah. yeah. So uh, um, I want to be clear that that ego, a function of the brain, it, 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 it doesn't always uh, have us defending the customs or the norms or the traditions with which we grew up. Many of us rebel against those traditions. Oh, good but, point. Yes. Right? Yeah. But the ego does compel us to defend that which we come up with on our own. In other words, part of what I fell for, my ego, as I was touring with the Trouble with Islam today, is that in uh, 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 reacting against the norms and customs and traditions, religiously speaking, and to a degree culturally too, that I grew up with, I decided that the reforms that I were laying out were the truth to be fighting for. Mm-hmm. And I myself was closed to those who would say to me, but isn't there some kind of an integration and integrity between some customs and some innovations? Can we not reconcile the two? Mm -hmm. And to me, that smacked of compromise. Mm -hmm. And God forbid that we... uh, entertain compromise because that would be selling out it's fearful it, it it's, creates a sense of fear and shame to feel it. like it, that's it, it you know when um i once took a course in uh, facilitating conversations across barriers right. and and the day that we this one day that we worked on uh this was the question was teaching creationism and evolution in the schools. And the, the course was all about listening to the facts that each side would cite. At the end of, the, at the end of that two- or three-hour period, I understood why people felt that they really wanted creationism taught in the schools. And I, to my absolute horror, I sympathized with them. <laughs> and I couldn't sleep that night for like three hours because I was imagining everybody I knew saying, you're betraying us, you know, just like I was terrified to realize that I could sympathize with something that I thought was so bad. And yet now I couldn't quite see it in the same light anymore. And I think that fear is what people are so, you know, who wants to feel that fear? It's very difficult. Exactly. And no wonder we capitulate to the ego all the time, right? Because it is a terribly uncomfortable position to be in. So what what was the fear that you had to face with the students who brought you those 
challenging questions right, about right. your book on Islam. Um, the fear uh, that I had to face, first of all, was the fear, and it was a fear, not a reality, of being wrong. Mm. That somehow uh, uh, writing a book about the trouble with Islam um, fell short of the real challenge that we all as human beings, you know, have to take up. And let me say for the record, Kat, before I forget, these kids were right. Mm. That's the kicker. They were right. It's not just the trouble with Islam today. It's the trouble with us human beings. And what is happening in America today, I'm realizing that so much of what I said to my fellow Muslims, I now have to say to Americans who aren't Muslim about how they are practicing, not just their politics, but also their identities, which of course go hand in hand with their politics. And if you think that I speak only of Trump supporters. Oh no. I don't. <laughs> you don't. I sure You're don't. really calling on people to step away from identity politics or beyond it at least. I beyond identity politics, exactly. You know, in Don't Label Me, for as uncomfortable as it is for many of my uh, fellow travelers on the liberal and progressive side of the pol political spectrum to hear, as uncomfortable as it is to hear, I make the case that we are part of the very problem that we excoriate our political others for. Well, to put a little bit of grounding on that, let's. why don't you read a little bit from this very, on page 47, is the story of how you met the woman who became your wife. And, and it involves, you know, part of your idea is that we have to speak and have friendships with people who are very different. And this story involves a person in your life like that. Right. Uh, so I'll set it up. The person of whom I speak um, is a very close friend named Jim, um, who is also an ardent Trump supporter. And I've known Jim for over 12, 13 years now. Um, and I know why he supports Donald Trump. So I have his backstory. And it's only because I have his backstory that I understand and, to my horror, can sympathize to some degree with where he's coming from. I'll read you the passage that you have in mind. Um, I had suffered a, a health crisis in 2011 um, and took, uh, took some time away. And now for the passage. After recuperating, I resumed my travels for work. Five time zones and three weeks later, Jim picked me up from Los Angeles airport. As we caught up in the car, he said that he'd like me to meet a new neighbor of his. She's a really neat lady he cooed. I'm crabby when I'm jet-lagged, and L.A. traffic drives me bonkers. Without thinking, I snapped at Jim. I don't have the time or the bandwidth for the emotional complexity of a romantic relationship. He shot back. Well, I'm not asking you to marry her. The next day, we walked across the street to a common green space. Laura strode up 
in funky jeans and blue suede loafers. Her puppy, Rocky, pounced on Jim's dog, Romeo. Yelps of romantic joy broke out. For the next 15 minutes, Laura and I flitted from her passion, animal welfare, to my fear of dogs, to her profession as a medical tattoo artist, to mine as an educator of moral courage, to our mutual rejection of law school, to the meaning that we both draw from having pursued our callings. Laura then aroused the butterflies in my stomach. Who we are, she mused, is God's gift to us. Who we become is our gift to God. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Seriously, yes. When can I see you again? I glanced at Jim as he sat beaming on a nearby bench. As we sauntered home, I took his arm and whispered, Well done, sir. He chuckled. Not bad for a homophobe, huh? So people called him a homophobe, which clearly he is not in the book. Correct. And, and it was just because he has, because he's a Republican, basically. They exactly just Exactly right. Exactly right. And Kat, he had told me this mm-hmm. on a few occasions. It, it, it couldn't shake it. It needled at him. He couldn't shake it. He was gut punched by those labels about him because the people who accused him of being a homophobe, as they often now accuse him of being racist, be- simply because he votes for Trump, he felt humiliated because the people who make those accusations and who hurl those labels, they don't know him. And worse, they don't care to know him. They see him as an avatar of something evil rather than as an individual with a backstory who may very well have uh, substantive reasons for voting the way he does. So his backstory, I think it sounds like, is related to backstories you've heard from other Americans throughout the heartland. And you say that his question is, do I belong here anymore? And part of my response to that is, really? I mean, I mean, isn't the issue simply that everybody else is saying that they belong and your problem is that you have difficulty allowing others to belong? What do you mean, do you belong here anymore? I mean, how could you not belong here? You're a straight white man. You know, so I, I'm skeptical of that question. So sure. tell me about that question. You know, Kat, if everybody um, was as compassionate as empathetic and as kind as you, uh, then I would be as suspicious of his question as you are. But the fact is that these days, much more often uh, than than I wish was the case, um, people who advocate for diversity and for inclusion do so in a very exclusive way. Mm-hmm. Meaning they accuse people like Jim of uh, of cruising on white privilege, and therefore of being illegitimate, uh, illegitimate players in a new multicultural uh, America, 
Um, when Jim says, do I belong anymore? He's not reacting to the increasing diversity of our, of our age. Remember, uh, you know, I'm Muslim. I'm brown-skinned. I'm gay. He has practically adopted me as his own daughter. He has no issue with any of, the, of those identities that I am. What he has an issue with is being told that you, sir, are ripe for a moral takedown simply because of the skin with which you were born and the gender that you maintain. Um, he does feel targeted. Um, and I have to say, I understand where he's coming from. Like you've witnessed that? or I've you've witnessed it on campuses, um, uh, on any number of occasions. Uh, people who call themselves advocates for justice, for social justice, um, white shaming others, snickering afterwards, rolling their eyes when told, um, do you realize that you're doing exactly to others what you hate being done to you? Um, and indulging in all kinds of theories and abstractions that don't take into account that people who live in the real world also hurt, also feel pain, and are not immunized from that by their white skin and their male uh, gender. You, you mentioned, I think, is a student named Sam, is it, from the South? That's right. Tell, tell a little bit of his story, because I felt like that one helped me understand sure. a little more what, sure. what you're talking about. Um, Sam is a young man um, whom I met at the University of Virginia, not, in sh not at their main campus, but at a satellite campus. I was giving a speech there uh, in 2014 about moral courage. And um, when everybody uh, had filed out of the auditorium afterwards, and he knew that he would not be overheard, um, Sam approached me, he outstretched his hand, and he said, I come in peace, of which I had no doubt, but he needed somehow to reassure me. And this is part and parcel of the insecurity he felt about asking me the questions that he had. But kudos to him, he asked them. He shook my hand and he said, why is it? that when academics and activists celebrate multiculturalism, that the best things about our culture down here, meaning uh, the culture of the U.S. South, uh, never seems to be included in that celebration of multiculturalism. Um, and then he acknowledged that, sure, every once in a while, you know, you'll get the farm to table act being done by, you know, some um, celebrity southern chef um, on the food network. Um, and I had to smile at, you know, his example of tokenism, right? Uh, people like me love to, you know, sort of uh, uh, deride others for, you know, using us as tokens. And he was pointing out that, um, frankly, we often use people like him uh, as tokens. Well, that was my first thought about the culture of the South is, well, what about okra? And what about, you know, chard? And right, <laughs> you know, that right. Kind of but that's not what he was referring to. Yeah. He was referring to something more spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, so I asked him the best things? Uh, give me some examples. And he said, well, you know, down here, when we ask, how are you today? We actually mean it. If someone is in trouble, say their car has rolled into a ditch, um, 
you won't have to wait a minute before somebody stops to help out. Um, we care, and we care sincerely. Uh, he asked me, and I was uh, teaching at NYU at the time. He said, do you notice the same where you come from? And I told him, you know, um, frankly, you know, I mean, in New York City, you see all kinds of people interacting and transacting with one another. But if you're asking about, you know, a pattern of generosity um, on the streets of New York City, no, I haven't seen that. Um, And he said, that's what I'm referring to. Why is it that the diversity that is celebrated as multiculturalism is so superficial? Why not dig deeper and also recognize that down here in the South, for all of our flaws, for all of our failings, for all of our history, we too have something to teach. And what's wrong with what's wrong with Sam or Jim, you know, having to overcome a few hurdles to talk about their lives? I mean, people of color had to do that forever. Right. And what's wrong with it being their turn to oh, do more listening? It's not just their turn, Kat. They get that it's their turn. It's the berating and the dismissing and the minimizing and the trivializing that they encounter about their cultures and about them as human beings mm-hmm. that they find so um, so frustrating. Um, you know, we can turn the tables on the very question that you asked me. You know, what's wrong with it being their turn? Again, it's not that it's their turn that they object to, but if what has happened to African Americans and to Chinese Americans and to Italian Americans and in many ways now to Muslim Americans and increasingly to Jewish Americans, if that's wrong, if the bigotry to which all of these groups are subjected is wrong, how can it be right to subject the loathed white guy to that kind of bigotry too. What I'm really asking is, how does payback amount to progress? I don't understand that. And of course, I have to say, I get that there's an element here of power. Mm -hmm. I get that completely. But here's the thing, I don't buy it. I speak to you as somebody who comes from at least three and probably more groups that are often labeled marginalized or disadvantaged. I don't feel marginalized. I don't locate myself in a place of disadvantage. And yes, I have privilege. That's very true. I have privilege. Here I am sitting on a stage engaging with you in front of an audience. But part of what you also say about power is it's not just about privilege. That there's a way in which we can locate power within ourselves. That's exactly right. Let me give you an example, Kat. Um, Precisely because America is diversifying demographically, people like me, meaning people of color, As an example, in many ways, we're in the driver's seat. We have far more influence 
on culture than most of us want to give ourselves credit for. Yeah, it's not something people say very often or no. that you hear very often. Oh, no. And I take my lumps for it, I assure you. But what I, you know, I take it from, 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 from rich personal experience that I don't get much pushback from white people about anything I say. And not because they think I'm right. It's because, as I've come to learn after speaking about why the lack of critical engagement, it's because most of them are afraid. Afraid of being thought bigots, racists, Islamophobes, homophobes, phobes of any kind, since I check off so many boxes. Now, many people of color have no problem pushing back on what I say. And well, they should. I don't know it all. I don't have a monopoly on truth. But why do I get so little of it from those who are supposedly in power? Yeah, I think that's a really good, a really good question that you ask. And, it, and you bring up this point about how political correctness is, can be this bludgeon. And and it made me wonder if we just don't need a different term than political correctness. For a long time, I've thought that it's, it's really not about correct, as in right or wrong. It's about making room for, like politically making room for. So if somebody would prefer to be referred to in a certain way, then I make room for them or they make room for me. Um, but that somehow the word political correctness as you say about Jim, it's become this way of imposing. You're allowed to say this. You're not allowed to say that, which, which, is, a, which is a road to tyranny, ultimately. So, so let, me, let me respond to that um, in this way f- first. Uh, political correctness is not a term that uh, those of us uh, who are, again, liberal or progressive um, thinkers um, – it's not a term we like. So it's not that we have chosen that term. Uh, that term, in fact, has been, um, you know, we've been slagged with it uh, by uh, more conservative folks um, who do feel like they're constantly being corrected because mm-hmm. they are. Well, and by, sometimes by, maybe they should be, you well, know. But okay. we'll the question that is how, second, right? But, well, so. And that's why, Kat, exactly. The question is how. That's the operative question. And that's why it's not so much a matter of what phrase is given to political correctness. Like it's not a change in language or terminology that we need. It's a change in approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. Um, we do need to make space, but not space only for those whom we decide are marginalized. We need to make space for those who are feeling excluded because we, in all of our happy talk about diversity, have decided that they don't deserve the kind of grace that we give to other people. It reminds me of this, um, a wife of this rancher in Tehama that we interviewed right after Trump was elected. We went out to a couple different counties uh, and interviewed, you know, oil folks and rancher folks to see 
why they voted for Trump and what they think. And and we ended this piece with this woman saying, you know, she she was she had been terrified during um, her cancer scare about the kind of care that she had under the Obamacare plan, and she she said, you know, but I couldn't talk to anybody because if people treat you and speak of you as though you're the devil, it doesn't make very much room for conversation, which I thought was a really apt way of describing the situation right after the election, because I was among them. I didn't want to have anything to do with those people, those people, you know? And, um, and when I heard that quote, I thought, okay, she's calling me out. She's calling all of us out to say, you know, uh, how do you expect us to understand each other if you think I'm the devil? You know? And how do you expect me, I can hear her saying, feeling like I'm part of your country, that I'm part of your nation, when in fact you don't want me being part of your tapestry? Which is partly true. It, of course it is. Of course it is. And, and I'll go a step further. Uh, I make the case, and don't label me, that many, again, by no means all, but many uh of our fellow citizens voted for Trump because they have felt humiliated by the likes of us. Over 20, 30 years, we've become very confident in, you know, labeling people we don't know, uh, labeling them racists and misogynists and homophobes, as Jim has gotten on any number of occasions. And this actually... Um, leads uh, to maybe uh, an even more contentious point, but I think one that I'd like people to think about. It, the question keeps coming up, why if these folks in the heartland, in the Midwest, and not a few on the coasts as well, if they're so decent, Irshad, why do they embrace a president who is the very opposite of decent as far as his character goes. Mm-hmm. And, and the, some of the answer that we got when we went out asking was, well, he listened to us. He listened to us. And, and, and I'll go, again, I'll, I'll deepen uh, what, what mm-hmm. is said there. You know, the covenant that came out of the civil rights movement, a hard-won covenant, um, was Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous uh, plea to um, judge by the content of our character, not by the color of our skin. Okay. Many lives were lost in promoting that as the deal Mm -hmm. in in the United States. But over the years, mainstream America has taken that deal to heart. Not everybody, but more than you might imagine. But over the last 10, 15, 20 years, with the rise of identity politics, more and more white Americans are being judged on the basis of their skin color, not by the content of their character. And so here's, I'm going to bottom line it. The unspoken question that I hear many in the United States asking is this, why should I care about the character of my president when I'm being judged by the color of my skin? In other words, it's not me, I hear them saying, who violated 
the agreement that people like you asked us to adopt after the civil rights movement. I haven't violated that agreement. You have. Mm. And that's something we've really got to think about because we ain't been saints. You talk in the book, you give this wonderful example of, so then what is part of the question? So then what? How do, how do, we, how do we then approach this question? And you have a friend, Genesis, in the South, who is on stage, and she's furious about the flag of Mississippi, and she holds it up, and she lights a lighter or something, but she yes. doesn't, doesn't want to burn it on stage. It's a little dangerous. So she throws it into the crowd and suggests that they rip it up. And then she hears from, is this right? She hears from an old high school friend. Well, is, or, uh, and, and a young man named Lewis. And well, she hears from a lot of people, actually. She hears from a lot of people, yes, <laughs> including people who want her dead, right? right? And by the way, let's clarify, um, the reason she you know, had the audience rip up uh, the flag of the state of Mississippi is that uh, it still has Confederate era symbolism in it. Um, the you know the the bars and stars, right. and um, you know she's part of a movement uh, that advocates for an inclusive flag design. Mm-hmm. Right. So after she you know pulled her inflammatory stunt on stage, um, you know noose hanging and all, um, there was a flood. Of reaction, the photo of it went viral, went national. A flood of reaction came her way, and in and among all of the uh, threats, uh, she received a message online from somebody who was not her friend, but whom she knew from many, many years ago. They knew each other in um, in elementary school. Elementary school, right? Okay, yeah. So they hadn't seen each other for years. They hadn't talked for eons. His name is Lewis, and he is um, part of a club called the Sons of Confederate Veterans. He is descended from a soldier who fought on the uh, secessionist side, on the Confederate side, uh, during the Civil War. And Lewis is a white guy, dusty ball cap, straggly beard, Um, you'd never know what he's really about if you just judged him by what he looked like. Genesis decided to take a risk, not a physical risk, but an emotional risk. She invited Lewis over to her place and to her backyard specifically to talk about their opposing points of view on the flag. She wanted to hash it out. She wanted to see where he was coming from. And keep in mind, it wasn't like there was trust between these two. They barely knew each other from Adam. Um, but she, what she did know was that being incendiary uh, may be good for a brand, but it wasn't good for results. And so she decided one afternoon to engage in a spontaneous, unscripted conversation with him. Mm -hmm. Um, And she started it by asking him a question. Mm -hmm. How do you feel 
When you see that flag, how does it make you feel? Not an intellectual question, a deeply human one. And he explained to her, it feels like home. Mm-hmm. How and do then you he feel? asked her. That's exactly the right. Same question. He reciprocated. How do you feel? And she said, it makes me feel unwelcome. And over the course of that afternoon, they talked and they talked and they talked. At one point, she assured him, I'm not here to, um, uh, to deride or, you know, shame your ancestors. Just as I know, you're not here uh, to, to assault my ancestors. So she assured him that she was coming from a place of good faith. And then they talked some more, some more, some more. And toward the end of the conversation, um, she finally asked him, how did you feel about what I did up there on stage? And he said, you know, at first I was upset. Do you want to read this part? There's a, you, have, you have him directly quoted in the, okay. in the book. Yeah. Um, at first I was kind of upset Lewis leveled with Genesis. Now, this is Lewis continuing to speak. And then, then I start thinking about it from your point of view. And I start seeing that this flag has been used as a symbol of hate for many years. I can see why it offends her, why she wants it down, why she doesn't want it to represent her home state. And then, he's still speaking now, and then the respect came. This is something she truly believes in, he's saying to himself. This is somebody who's actually doing something about it, not just sitting on the sidelines. You know, and he's saying this to Genesis, you know, people voice their opinion all the time, but do they take the action to do something about it? No, they don't. It doesn't happen often. And then finally, Lewis says, to know that I might have been offended by your protest? <laughs> Genesis, here I am, honored to know somebody who is actually daring to make a change, doing something, putting her name, her face out there, taking the time to talk to me, to hear my side of it, not just blindly say, this needs to be changed, and not want to hear people who support it, meaning the flag not wanting to hear their side of it. Genesis, he said, you are doing everything respectfully. And he finished up his answer by saying, so yeah, I went from upset to understanding, and now, because of the respect you have shown me, I've come to a place of respect for you. Now, what does that mean, Kat? In that moment, it's not that Lewis changed his mind about wanting to keep the flag as is. He hadn't changed his mind, Mm -hmm. but something much deeper happened. He realized that he cared more for Genesis than he did for the flag. And then over time, over the next several weeks, The two of them brought together their peers from each side and co-facilitated, again, unscripted, co-facilitated 
an open conversation about the new flag design. And when most of uh, 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 Lewis's peers uh, realize that this actually is not offensive, that, yeah, you know, when you guys talk about inclusion, you really do mean inclusion, that this isn't about writing our heritage out, but rather, you know, designing a flag that even acknowledges through two blood-red bars on each side of the flag that we will continue to have our differences, but that we no longer need to spill blood to navigate those differences. That's when it became clear that there really isn't anything here that we need to worry about. We're not going to lose our heritage when that flag is changed. In other words, this doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. I don't have to lose for you to win. And for you to win, I don't need to be giving anything up, anything that's truly meaningful to me. So let me tell you, I won't give too much away here, but when I was putting the finishing touches on the book, I needed to get in touch with Lewis just to fact-check something. Well, thank goodness I had my doubts about this particular fact. It wasn't that the fact was wrong. But Lewis took the opportunity to say something to me during that conversation. He said, by the way, I've decided I'm no longer flying my Confederate flag. He's taken it down, and he's put it away in a box of things of the past. Of course, not every set of conversations with your other is going to go that swimmingly. Of course not. I'm not so naive as to believe that all you have to do is be nice and everything will turn out peachy keen. No, this is not about being nice. But it is about taking time. It is about taking time. And here's the point. Imagine the possibilities that Genesis would have left on the table if all she did was judge Lewis by his scraggly beard, his dusty ball cap, his white skin, and his position on the the flag. flag. And here's the question that I have then about that. So it's very inspiring to think about that kind of story and to think about those kinds of conversations. And yet, so much of our public dialogue is taking place on social media, you know, on media in general, and it is the worst of all possible configurations for anything like what you're talking about. There's no space, there's no time, the reactivity is immediate, and people expect the reactivity to be immediate. You know, I have... I have my, my nephew says if he doesn't text back to his friends within 30 seconds, they think something's wrong. I mean, that's just an anecdote. But it's just that this is a, a medium that requires a lot of immediate feedback. And instant gratification. Yes. Right. And so, and so you're talking about a one-on-one kind of thing. I mean, how can we really do anything for America when so much of what's happening in America is happening across these media platforms that don't allow anything for it. Exactly. Exactly. That said, uh, social media is not going away. No, we have true. to work within the reality 
that not only does it exist, but increasingly it's where many of us live online. And so, um, I've, uh, had to study a whole lot of neuroscience to reach some of my own conclusions about how we can work with the reality of social media, Mm -hmm. uh, and turn the tables on it. And by the way, turn the tables on the tech companies uh, that continue uh, to feed us both uh, gadgets and, uh, and software uh, that are deliberately designed to amp up our emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the points I hope that younger people who read uh, Don't Label Me will take away from this is that you, my friends, are being played. You're being manipulated. Uh, And if you're cool with that, um, I'd love to know why. Um, In other words, the conversation doesn't end. Okay, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. No. Tell me why you're okay with being a pawn of the tech companies. But so how do you, what do you do in your own feeds that you feel makes a difference, that you feel it? Today was a perfect help. Today was a perfect example of what I strive to do. Um, I did an interview earlier in the day um, that uh, generated a lot of criticism. And rather than um, walk away from it or decide that, you know, these people are just looking for a fight. And by the way, some may be. It's not that they're all not looking for a fight. Some might be looking for one, but I won't go in that in there assuming that they are. Um, with a lot of people, I went back and forth, uh, but always with a tone of in, in, uh, inviting further engagement. And you know, at the close uh, of uh, some of these exchanges, I made sure to say thank you for taking the time. Um, to talk to me about this. Uh, I'm not here to change your mind. I'm here to understand from your perspective why you don't get my perspective. So one of the things I've learned about entering into potentially tough conversations is that it does no good for results, let alone for the humanity of the other person, to enter these conversations asking yourself, How can I change that person's mind? Mm -hmm. When you go into a conversation with that framework, you are seduced to treat that person as an object, Mm -hmm. as an it, um, as something to be manipulated. It's fundamentally a colonialist kind of power position to take take that. Exactly right. And why, if we're, you know, against uh, the injustice that comes from imperialism and colonialism, how are we changing anything by then adopting that same mindset but I think towards our political it, it takes the, It takes stepping back from the conversation. If something in that conversation rises, raises a, a reactivity in me, it takes stepping back and not saying anything for a while to figure out what is that reactivity about? What's the shame or humiliation that I'm feeling right. that makes me want to zing them. I've got the perfect zinger. I've got the perfect zinger. Right. You know? Right. And how, and, and if, and to not use it, I have to be willing to feel shame. Ugh. You know? So it it really, you're, you're calling on Americans to, I think you're calling all Americans to go to therapy, frankly, (laughs) 
It's like everybody go to therapy, figure things out, then talk to each other. You know, <laughs> is what it feels like. Um, um, I hope not. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, because therapy hasn't done much for me. Oh, by really? The way. Okay. But well, having said right. that, no. I- <laughs> As is probably evident to you, Kat. Um, <laughs> no. But, but, um, but no, I, I don't, th- you know, here's the thing. Again, back to this suspicion, I'm sure, of naivete on my part. Um, I, 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 I'm not even expecting this from Americans. I'm expecting this from teachers. Mm-hmm. who are raising, along with parents, of course, a new generation of Americans. You're also expecting it, though, from progressives. You're expecting progressives to hear this and really start examining, you know, what's happening on the left. How am I contributing to this blaming and, you know, exactly. labeling people? Exactly. I, I, I am hoping that uh, our fellow travelers will look at themselves in the mirror and ask, as I point fingers at the other, how am I contributing to the very problem uh, that I uh, often berate the other for? Um, Will, even if that question is asked, does that mean that uh, the, the person who's engaged in introspection will do anything about it? God, no. And does it mean it's, that it doesn't the person mean that who's at all. pointing at me is going to stop? Not necessarily. Of course. You know, I of mean, course. sometimes, uh, sometimes I, I have this phrase I use called the card of grace. And, uh, and it gets tiring sometimes. My phrase is that if I have the card of grace, I have to play it. It doesn't matter if I'm tired of playing it. I'm tired of being the first one that has the dang card of grace all the time. You know, why should I be the one all the time? Because, you know, then it gets into that, the, the enjoyment of being put upon right. of somehow, right. but but uh, you know it's it's a you don't know whether it's going to be you or the other person. Sometimes it was Jim. Sometimes it was you. You know you don't know whether it's going to be you or the other person. But whoever has it, the only way through is that whoever has it has to play it. Well, and know? especially and here's where you know again uh, uh, people with liberal and progressive politics come in. If you're the one wanting change. Mm-hmm. And yet you're not willing to play the card of grace for the sake of change. And to model the change. And to be the change. Okay, but then don't complain that there isn't change. Because you haven't contributed to it in that case. Mm-hmm. You'll complain anyway, because that's who we are as human beings. But then don't expect me to view you as having any credibility in complaining about it. Mm-hmm. What's what's one of the things that you're confronting right now for yourself that you're struggling with? How do I talk about this? How do I bring this up? I, I don't know the right way through this conversation. So, um, in in full transparency, Kat, um, I do struggle with whether um, I'm bonkers. Uh, I'm nuts uh, in you know in proposing um, that that even when you feel put upon, you be the one to step up in the listening department. Um, immediately after uh, the election of November uh, 2016, uh, I uh, was in front of an audience um, of women. Um, and I had been scheduled to speak to a large audience of women. Um, and 
and I stood up and I said to them, so you've asked me to speak with you about leadership. I have to tell you, I feel utterly incapable of doing that right now because the leadership I'm asking of each of us feels like complicity in, um, I'm not going to call it evil, but in a kind of politics that does injustice, meaning Trumpian politics. There are still times when I wonder, am I asking people, good people, to be complicit in a bad regime? I don't think I am. You mean by asking them to listen? Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. I don't think I am, but, but what if I am? I have to entertain that possibility. What if I am? You know, the only time I wondered that was um, you were talking about the Trumpian, the Trump people, and and I began to wonder myself that very question. And then you made a turn into separating um, the actions of the president from the experiences, life experiences of the people who voted for him. And I think there is a real distinction there. I mean, you were talking about not the actions right. and the morals and the ethics as expressed by the president, but you were talking about the longings and the desires and the um, uh, needs of the people who who felt somehow they were being listened to for the first time. Exactly. And moreover, that they began feeling this way long before Trump hit the scene. It's a damn shame that it took somebody like Trump to wake us up to the reality that a whole swath of the country, whom, again, people like us, formally educated, living in urban centers, easily write off. And this has been happening for a long time. I mean, I watched this happen in the environmental movement, in Oregon with the loggers, in Utah with the land battles in Utah, um, that the environmentalists would use really derogatory language talking about the, the people on the other side. They didn't, they didn't think twice about using that language for the record, you know, and, and name calling and shaming and, and, you know, a person in Oregon who was a logger was simply a person losing their job, you know, and and trying to feed a family. And you could you could talk all you want about the trees and the ecology and all that is a different. So those are different questions than the question of how is this person going to earn a living. Nobody was stepping up and saying, "Can we train these people to do something else? What would you else like to do besides this?" And you know, and even if there were no good ideas for what that logger who loses his or her job could do thereafter, who was stepping up to listen to that logger's backstory, to that logger's experiences, to that logger's hopes and dreams and values? Who cared enough to take the time to, to, to treat the logger as a fellow human being? Dignity matters. So um, we p we're just about to turn to audience questions. I just want to ask you to run through like a bullet point list of, all right, suppose somebody wants to give this a shot. What do they do? What are some like one, two, three steps? 
Well, um, there are tips and tactics sprinkled throughout the book, um, if, even for real-time you know, diffusion. Like if you want to diffuse a situation simply because you know that you are going to lose it if you don't diffuse the situation now, uh, you know, first thing to do, breathe. Breathe intentionally. Deep breath. Slow jam that brain. Decelerate the blood rush precisely so that you can transcend the primordial, primitive part of the brain that is in the driver's seat right now. Transcend it with that just one second of breath in order to tap into the more evolved part of your brain, the brain that allows you to make more rational decisions. Um, Second, um, be grateful. What the hell for? Be grateful for the fact that um, you actually have the opportunity, now that you're a little bit more calm, to explain where you're coming from. Uh, Be grateful that nobody is putting a gun to your head at the moment saying shut up or die. So shift your brain into a much more, um, you know, compassionate mode. Yeah, it's not, we're not being chased by the tiger at this We are moment. not. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We're not on the savanna, you know, um, having to fight or flee. And finally, keep breathing deliberately. And as you do, know that you are turning your irrational fear of being judged of being wrong, of being threatened. You're now turning that fear into uh, much more constructive emotions, not just compassion, not just gratitude, but also even pride. Pride that I've got values that I can identify and that I've got to find a way to express to you, you know, so that, but in a way that you can hear. And what that means is, and I'll just one final tip in, in a very condensed, you know, list of tips, mm-hmm. recognize that there is a difference between pride and pridefulness. Mm-hmm. Too often, when we are fighting for a cause, we lapse into pridefulness, into arrogance, into that, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to lose. You're going to be the one to lose. Mm-hmm. Pride, on the other hand, is about knowing where you stand and why you stand there. And just standing there and on just the ground. Literally just standing there. And, and by the way, and acknowledging that I'm secure enough in where I'm coming from that I can stand my ground, but also seek common ground. How? By listening to a perspective very different from my own. Listening is not the same as agreeing with. And respect is not the same as agreement. So often, I hear from young people who say, you have to respect me. Well, why do you assume I don't? Because you don't agree with me. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Respect, even when you look at it from an etymological perspective, comes from the Latin for respectate, to stop, turn around, 
and look again. So if I'm in conversation with you, that in itself is a sign of my respect, that I have enough faith in how multifaceted you are that I'm not simply going to walk away thinking of you as some kind of a fixed, immutable object. I'm going to engage because you are my equal. You are my peer. You are my fellow. So thank you, Lily. (laughs) And see you on the flip side one of these days. And thank you, Irshad. This has been absolutely delightful. Thanks for being here today. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>